Well, I love Calvin and Hobbes. You know the comic strip I'm talking about, the one with uh, the, the little boy named Calvin who's based on the theologian John Calvin and the tiger Hobbes who is based on Thomas Hobbes, the philosopher. So at one point it's these super deep people and at the same time it is a little child and his stuffed animal. Well, if you don't, I would like to introduce it to you because as I've been preparing for this message, there's a specific comic strip that's been on my mind. Let me show it to you here. It says, repent sinners, the end is near, spring is coming. And Calvin says, there's snowman prophets of doom. And his mom replies, you certainly take the pleasure out of waiting for daffodils. And I guess we can include eschatology in the things Bill Watterson, the author of this, and Calvin Hobbes has masterfully, masterfully embodied. Isn't it funny, though, how like these two reactions in this comic strip kind of mirror the reactions that we have uh, as a church to this topic, to the end times, to the apocalypse, to whatever you want to call it. We seem to have these same things, right? Some people love the subject. They can't get enough of it. They'll spend hours poring over commentaries and, and, and you know, uh, the book of Revelation and anything that might even look like the book of Revelation. And then there's and every end times movie ever made. Uh, and then there's the other people who are like, I don't even want to talk about the subject. Uh, it's confusing. It's complicated, and it really takes the joy out of reading the Bible for me. So if we could just take those parts out, that would be better. Well, uh, Jesus actually urges us into this tension. Uh, he, he invites us to find somewhere in the middle because he talks about this stuff. Uh, we've been looking now in the second half of our Lenten series through Luke about the moment Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem till he gets to the cross, right? And in that time, there are these two major passages where Jesus talks about this stuff in Luke chapter 17 and Luke chapter 21. And as I read, over these, read these passages preparing for this, I was stuck asking this question over and over of like, why does Jesus include these things? Why, why are they in here and what <laughs> does he want us to do with them? Well, I had that thought as I was looking over these pictures as well. I googled uh, Left Behind, uh, and maybe you remember this. Uh, you guys remember, you know, Kirk Cameron, uh, Nick Cage, the books, the movies. This took the Christian world by storm for a while, but I'm pretty sure that's not what Jesus was going for. Uh, you know, maybe, but I don't think his goal was to make some entertaining media, I also don't think his goal was what we have on the screen next. Uh, if what I've read is correct, there was a man named Harold Camping who predicted the end times, the end of the world through scripture 12 different times and went 0 for 12 by my count. Uh, it definitely wasn't May 21st, 2011, as the picture says. And so I'm pretty sure that those kind of claims, the ones that aren't true, that it's the end of the world, weren't what Jesus was going for either. And so I'm left with the question, okay, why are these in here? What is it for? Because there are certainly is apocalyptic language here, right? Like, listen to how Jesus himself says it. He uses in, in, in chapter 17 language that says, one is taken and the other left, right? That sounds a lot like Kirk Cameron. Uh, he also said, likens this time to the days of Noah, you know, where the flood killed everyone except for the people on an ark. Uh, and even the Bible, people who put this put this book together in this form, before the, one of the sections we're going to read today, they add the header that says, uh, here, let's see, signs of the end of the age. And so as much as I want to run away from this at, at times, it's in here, and it's in here for a reason. And as much as I want to focus overly on this at times, 
I need to figure out why Jesus put this here and what we're supposed to do with it. And so that's what I want to invite us to do with our time tonight, to ask the question and hopefully answer it. Why does Jesus say these things and what are we to do with them? You guys with me? Excellent. Well, last week, if you joined us for Pastor Chris's sermon, he introduced the quote from C.S. Lewis that says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our rates can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. If you missed that, go ahead and tune in last week to that. But I was thinking about that, and I was like, huh, Pastor Jason two weeks ago talked about money, and you could easily apply that quote to money as well, how we can either pretend like it doesn't matter and it's not that important and try to get rid of money entirely, or we can become obsessed with money and make it into an idol and give it more authority than the gospel in our lives. And I was like, huh, I bet that same thing could be applied to our passage today, to the end times. We can be so obsessed with the apocalyptic that we look for times and dates and signs, and we speak with certainty about something that Jesus said is going to come on us like a thief in the night. Or we can find ourselves ignoring the topic and skipping over where Jesus talks about this and finding something that's just easier to understand. Well, these passages are in this book for a reason. And today, we're going to try and figure out what Jesus wants us to take with what wants us to take with uh, us on this passage and not just leave behind. So uh, I invite us to do that. Let's see why Jesus chose to speak of the last days and his last days. Because clearly this matters. Clearly this matters. Well, if you'll turn with me to Luke 21, you'll get to see this for yourselves. Because in Luke 21, we find Jesus in the temple courts. Uh, And after witnessing a a widow drop her last two coins into the offering for the temple, uh, we have him saying these words. So join me in verse 5 of chapter 21. It says, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, being Jesus, said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. So here in this passage, we have some concrete things that Jesus says. He says there's going to be a time when the temple's destroyed. He says that people are going to come claiming to be the Messiah. And he says wars near and far are going to occur. But even after all that, that doesn't mean the time is right now. Right? And so we look at those things and everything that Jesus mentions, everything he just said happens within 100 years of him saying it. Right? If we, if we look back at that time, if Jesus is talking around 30 AD, uh, we have these two people, Dothios the Samaritan and Simon Bar Kokaba, claiming to be the Messiah, and Rome besieging and destroying the temple in Jerusalem. All of it happens. You know, the fact that Jesus starts with some prophecy that we can see clearly occurred 
really, really matters for this. It really is important. First, it shows that Jesus knows what he's talking about, right? He's not just speaking into something ad hoc. He is telling us of things that are going to happen and things that no one would have expected the Messiah to say. No one would have expected the Messiah to come in and say, hey, God's major place on earth, the temple, the place that his presence is supposed to dwell, that's going to be destroyed. They would have thought the opposite, that the Messiah is supposed to bring this to a place of power and protect the temple and defend it against God's enemies. Why would the Messiah proclaimer allow its destruction? It's counter to what they would have expected, and it makes even more stark the fact that not only is the temple building destroyed, but Jesus allows himself, the actual presence of God, to be killed. Jesus knows what he's talking about, and he sees these things from a perspective that's beyond what's expected. So if we see all that, we also see Jesus doing a very second temple period teacher kind of thing here. He combines events that are taking place here and now that he's talking about in the next hundred years with other events that fit the same theme, this apocalyptic theme. It's a very uh, second temple thing to do. And so he talks about the end. He may be talking about things that are going to happen in Jerusalem in the next hundred years. But he's also talking about things that are happening beyond the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD that are beyond what has happened in the last 2,000 years. So he has described what will occur in the near side and what will happen in the future. And so for us, we have to wrestle with the broadness of what Jesus is talking about, that he is doing a very Jesus thing, a very God-like thing, and talking to multiple people in multiple levels all at once. So for us to answer our question and see why Jesus says what he says and what we need to do about it, we need to take a Jesus-sized perspective. We need to take a Jesus-sized perspective. And don't we all need that, just in general? I know that I want a more Jesus-sized perspective. I want to have a perspective that doesn't assume death is the end, but that there can be life afterward. I want a perspective that means a lack of food doesn't end in hunger, but ends in the Lord providing. I want a perspective that means blindness still means sight, or that there's a way forward when there seems no way, or that we can walk on water if that's what God wants to do. And I know I need that in general, but I definitely need it when I'm getting into the words of Jesus. If I end with my perspective, we're going to fall way short of what Jesus is actually saying. We need to recognize that Jesus said things for his first century hearers, for the events that happen in that century, and for things that won't happen for many years after that. You know, Jesus takes their ideas of the Messiah, of the day of the Lord, the day that was going to come where God would judge all peoples, that the Jewish people were supposed to look forward to with fear and excitement. He takes all of that and expands it and blows it way beyond what they were ready for. And I think he's doing the same thing to us, to our ideas of the rapture, our ideas of heaven, our ideas of the end of the world. If we put this into practice and try to adopt a Jesus-sized perspective— Maybe we can see more what Jesus is saying and not what we think is going to happen. So let's try and do that. Let's take a look at this next section of Luke 21 and try to adopt a perspective that's more like Jesus and less like what we expect. So continuing on in verse 10, it says, And he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, 
and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives." Well, wars, natural disasters, plagues, famines, that sounds an awful lot like the present, doesn't it? You know, people disagree. You know, I haven't really seen the signs from heaven lately. Maybe you have. Uh, Maybe there have been terrors I don't know about. But other than that, that sounds a little too much like what I saw in the news this week. Right, I heard uh, recently about an earthquake in Japan, uh, so check that one off. We've got war, check, uh, COVID, check, uh, the impacts of the war on the global food supply, check. Like All of these things are happening, and so it's no surprise that people can point to this passage and just say, we're in the end times, and then give a message that goes from there. The problem with that is that Jesus talks about things in this passage that have to do with the end, and things that happened in 70 AD, and things that don't fit neatly into either box. And so I can't just give you a sermon now jumping off of that onto the end times. We have to try and say, why is Jesus saying this, and what is it here for? And while all of this sounds eerily like the present day, Jesus also says this to those who are in the first century. You are being delivered to synagogues and to prisons and before governors and kings in the name of Jesus. You'll be put into situations where the Holy Spirit must speak rather than the intellect of the disciple or apostle. You'll be betrayed by family and friends and put to death. That sounds like the book of Acts to me rather than yesterday on my TV. And there are some parallels. I could point to things and places where people are doing things like that. But the clearest way to read this is that Jesus had some words to the people that were going to go through this stuff right after he dies. And he has some words that they were that were going to outlive them far in the future. And so he, you know, Jesus says, <laughs> uh, uh, he ends this section by saying, and not a, a hair on your head will perish. Right after he told them, some of you will be put to death. And so there's a little bit of confusion here. What is Jesus talking about? It seems like maybe he's saying uh, your, your life will go on in the kingdom that is coming. Uh, but he's clearly talking to multiple people in multiple sections in multiple times. Even that phrase uh, that your soul will not perish in Greek is often used to mean your physical life. And so Jesus could have said this more complicated, I'm sure, but he did it pretty complicated in here, probably to show us that we can't know the day or the hour and that this is important. And so even in this section, I am reminded for the need for perspective to see that the words were given to those who had faced persecution in that day. And a lot of this language sounds like the Old Testament day of the Lord. If you look up those passages in the Old Testament, you'll hear a lot of the same things about earthquakes and terrors and shaking. And Jesus is expanding that idea and the idea of the Messiah as well. So I've left you more confused. What is the takeaway? What are we supposed to do? Why is Jesus saying this? Well, I think one thing that we can assume up to this point and we'll see in the next section is that trusting in Jesus leads to life, whatever the circumstances. 
Jesus is going to give a pathway to life regardless of circumstance. And this is true for the first century here. He says, whether you're betrayed by friends and family or caught in the midst of war or famine or the end of the world, the solution is going to remain the same. Trust what I'm saying. Trust in me. Trust in Jesus. Endure in the name of Jesus. Jesus continues uh, saying this and showing the events of, uh, of 70 AD in the next section. But isn't this the hope that we have? Isn't this what we want to invite people to? That regardless of circumstance, we have hope in the name of Jesus? That is what Jesus is pointing to here. He's telling his disciples, you're going to get this. And then he shows them the event that they're going to need it for. Let's read here uh, more in verse 20 and beyond. It says... And when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What we see clearly in this section is Jesus giving a warning. He says, hey, when this happens, get out of Jerusalem. That is crystal clear. He depicts how these events are going to be horrible, and he literally says, run for the hills. According to the church fathers, that is what the early Christians did. When they saw the Romans coming, they fled in the Transjordan to a city called Pella and largely escaped the fate of those who stayed in Jerusalem. No one survived in Jerusalem that the Romans didn't want to. And yet, Christians had the opportunity to escape it if they followed Jesus' warning. You know, perhaps that's what Jesus was weeping over in, in Luke 19, where he weeps over Jerusalem. Maybe it was the judgment of that city, or maybe it's the greater judgment yet to come. But either way, Jesus cries at those who wouldn't escape the fate of that judgment. Jesus gives a clear warning and compels us to avoid the fate that is coming. Do we have ears to hear? Are we listening? Jesus compels us to avoid that fate. Are we listening? I had to ask myself that question today as I prepared for this. Am I listening to the voice of Jesus and am I trying to avoid what he's trying to keep me from? You know, there are times that Jesus walked right into danger, right? He walked into crowds that wanted to stone him. He walked to the cross knowing full well what was going to happen. And there are times that he didn't, that he stayed away from Jerusalem because people wanted to kill him. This is not Jesus trying to avoid a hard time. But there are things that God wants to keep us from, that he has given us direction to stay away from, that if we just listen to Jesus, we don't have to go through. In 70 AD, that was the fate of those who remained in Jerusalem. And for us, it's something even bigger. Do we have ears to hear? Are you listening to Jesus? Well, as he has throughout this passage, Jesus continues to talk about something that's happening in the future. Uh, Verse 25 says these words. 
And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring sea and waves, people fainting with fear and with the foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Uh, There are some of these things that happened in 70 AD, but there are also some things that didn't. Now, Josephus talks about seven signs that happened accompanying the destruction of Rome, which is super interesting, but I'm confident that the Son of Man did not return on the clouds, and so this is not talking about 70 AD. This is talking about a future event when Jesus comes back. And so if that's the case, what do we do with this? If Jesus is talking about events yet to be, what are we supposed to do? Well, we take the same idea that he's already told to those going through the things in Jerusalem, that we have to endure for the name of Jesus, that we have to trust, that we have to put our faith in the redemption that comes from him. Instead of something that we have to decipher, instead of a time or a place, we're supposed to keep our eyes open and watch for what we already know. Jesus says that this is going to be fairly obvious and fairly clear. And he uses the example of a fig tree coming into summer, in a parable that comes right after this. And so let me read that, and then we'll explain it. It says, uh, verse 29, and he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. And so also, when you see these things taking place, you know the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There are a lot of things in this chapter that we can argue about, that we can take opinions about, that I can tell you what I think about. But I don't think that's why they're here. Uh, Jesus says, hey, when you see these things start to happen, stand up straight and know that your redemption is at hand. Endure with confidence. If we take a lot of time for me to tell you my opinions, then you start looking for my opinions. You start looking for your opinions. You start looking to see, is it going to be May 11th, 2023, or is it going to be April 3rd, 2024? And I don't think that's the point. When Jesus says all these things, I think what we miss if we focus in on that part is what he says in verse 33. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Those are words that only God himself could say. And so if Jesus is saying what only God can say, his words have authority, his life has authority, and I want no one to put their faith in my opinion on those words. I want everyone to put their faith in that person. I want every person to put their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. When these things start taking place, when we start seeing the fig leaves, the leaves coming out, when we start seeing things get bad and the days get dark and we're like, guys, I'm pretty sure this is the end. I don't want anyone looking for my opinions to be like, oh, Dan said this was going to happen or "Ooh, that looks like that's going to happen. I want you watching for the coming king. I want our eyes on Jesus. You know, there's a trap in putting too much in our understanding of what's going to happen at the end. There's a trap in being too into the end times and trying to figure out exactly every little thing. But there's also a trap in not paying attention at all. Jesus warns us to escape a coming wrath. 
If we had been in 70 AD, we might have been able to escape the destruction of Jerusalem. But what is it now that he warns us of? What is the wisdom that we need to apply? Well, in Luke 21, he goes on to say this. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. He says, he says the days are coming. <laughs> the end is going to arrive. It's going to happen for everyone, wherever you are, and whether you're ready or not. While I can't know the day or the hour that Jesus is going to return, while I can easily get the details wrong for you, uh, I certainly can help you not be unready. I don't want to fail to be ready. I want to hear these words of Jesus. And rather than ignore them, or rather than focus in on the wrong details, I want to be watching for him. Because if we get too caught up in this life, if we get caught up in what Jesus mentions here, the distractions of pleasure or drunkenness or whatever it may be, then we miss our chance for the next. Or another way to put it, if we get caught up in this life, we miss our chance to be caught up in the next. Remember how this conversation started? When Jesus is in the temple, something happens before he talks about all this. It says at the beginning of chapter 21, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. The only way somebody could do something like that is if they have their eyes on the kingdom of heaven. You can't have your eyes on your next meal or on what you're going to do for that night. It's got to be on the kingdom of heaven. Why does Jesus give us these words in Luke 21? What does he want us to do with them? Luke 21 is a warning for those listening to Jesus at that moment in the temple and a warning for us and for everyone that will hear them until the day Jesus returns. A warning not to simply let what comes come, but to turn our eyes upon Jesus so we might find joy when he does come. Luke 21 ends by Jesus saying that he was in the temple teaching every day and spending his nights on the mountain where he would soon be betrayed. He gave every chance for his listeners to hear the good news and turn and repent. As we enter into a time of communion here, he gives us that option as well. He gives us every opportunity to turn our eyes on Jesus and be ready when he does come. And so whether it's the first time or the next time, I want to invite you as we enter into this time to turn your eyes on Jesus to spend a moment considering, are you ready for when you meet him face to face? Because that is why Luke 21 is here. Don't miss your chance to turn your eyes on Jesus. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, it says these words, the Lord Jesus in the night he was betrayed took bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Bible doesn't say exactly how to take communion by what elements to use or exactly what methods to go through. But it does say this. It says, let a person examine himself so, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is an opportunity for you to take a Jesus-sized perspective on your own life. To confess your shortcomings and to ask for the forgiveness that Jesus readily offers. So we're going to pray some prayers together and I'm going to invite you to participate in this sacrament with us. So take your bread or your juice and take your, your cup and you can dip it in there and remember that this is the body of Christ given for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. Don't worry about getting all the ritualistic parts right, but just let it be real and let Jesus do what he would like to in you as you turn your eyes on him. And so as we prepare ourselves, let's take a moment and then pray these prayers together. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we will be made clean. Jesus, I pray that as we consider these words that you spoke not long before you went to the cross for us, that it would be a moment for us to turn our eyes back to you, that we would be able to see ourselves the way you see us and then accept the gift that you offer of forgiveness and then we could keep our eyes on you as we go forward. God, thank you and receive our praise as we pray the prayer that, that you taught your disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.